Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Final part of Give Me a Sign Today, part nine. Been looking at the eight recorded miracles in John's Gospel that he calls miraculous signs. Um, as we know, signs are, uh, are appointed to something or appointed to a destination. And what we've been digging into as we look at these particular miracles uh, is what's the lesson for us? Because uh, John records them, they're there for a reason. He says there's many, many other uh, miraculous things that Jesus, is di- Jesus did and there wouldn't be enough room for the books in the, wor- for the, in the world for the books uh, to contain that. Uh, so he's been very specific in identifying just eight of Jesus' miracles. And, and, you know, whenever you read God's word, you always got to say, God, what, how is this speaking to me? What's the lesson for me? Because it's not just something you read and go, oh, that's really, really cool. It, uh, yeah, and I imagine that would have really impacted the people way back then. Uh, but no, God is a living God. His word is alive, which means there's a principle for us today to draw from that. So let's launch in John 21 and 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were gathered together. Uh, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring us some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, ask him who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This, is how the thir- um, this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So there's the question, what is this particular sign actually pointing to? Well, I think it helps for us to have a little bit of uh, context to this encounter. This particular event took place in the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the Father. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus in resurrected form was on the earth for another 40 days. That's a significant amount of time. Seven of the disciples are here together and they've decided to go fishing. Now, four of these disciples uh, were actually uh, professional fishermen. And Jesus, if we recall, had called them from their fishing and said, now we're going to fish for men, it was Peter, his brother Andrew, James, and his brother John. Now, I think it's significant because it's now Peter who says, Okay, guys, you know, 
What are we doing here? Let's go fishing. And reading between the lines, there's a sense of resignation that says, guys, for all the recent events, I tell you, I'm just tired. I'm, I'm worn out. Uh, I've had enough of this discipleship business. It seems a little bit too difficult. And I'll tell you why Peter might have been saying something like that, or that's kind of the attitude we can read between the lines. Because if you think about it, these guys had spent three years following around in Jesus' footsteps. They'd heard his teaching. They'd seen his miracles. They'd seen the impact that he had on people. Uh, they'd, they'd, they'd followed in his footsteps and then they'd watched him die. They had mourned his death for two days and then they'd heard that he was raised again. But there had been some major problems because around the time of the crucifixion, all of the disciples had deserted Jesus. Do you know at the cross, the only disciple who was mentioned being at the foot of the cross was John. So all the other guys had, had uh, deserted him. Peter, we know, sometime earlier, uh, had denied three times that he even knew Jesus. I'm not associated with Jesus. Go away. And so he had denied him. After this, because of the pressure that was now on Jesus' followers, the disciples hid themselves away in a locked room for fear of the Jews. Jesus had told them that he would rise again, but their actions clearly demonstrate, number one, that they didn't believe he would rise again, and secondly, that they certainly didn't expect that he would rise again. Uh, in fact, I'm not making that up because when the women came to find the disciples with the news that the tomb was empty, Luke 24 and 11 says, they did not believe the woman. Their words seemed to them like nonsense. So you can see within these disciples a sense of resignation that that was a season, it was good, Jesus was a great teacher, uh, you know, a great rabbi. It was nice to have his influence in our life, but now it's all over. And here they are at a point of discouragement. They felt defeated, probably incredibly disappointed and certainly delusioned. And now maybe Peter is saying, listen, we've just spent these years with Jesus. I'll never forget those years. I'll be grateful for those years. The experience was awesome. But it's all over. Now I'm going back fishing. I'm going back. I failed at this discipleship thing anyway. Uh, and, to, and basically to Peter, he's, he, he's turning his back on what Jesus had called him to and gone back to what Jesus has called him from, if that makes sense. So let's revisit that calling. Luke 5 and 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with all the people crowning around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that's Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that the nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. 
And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed him. Back then in the beginning, what an amazing response. This is probably for these fishermen, one of the greatest um, uh, catches of fish they've ever, ever caught. Uh, If they'd taken this to the market, they would have got a bucket load of money, I'm sure. But Jesus says, no, guys, what I want you to do is to leave that and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so the picture is this. They left the, the best catch of their lives on the shore and followed Jesus. Friends, obedience is obedience. Can I hear an amen? When God calls, God calls. But sometimes we give conditional obedience. Or we say things like, well, I'll obey when the ducks line up a little bit better in my life. I'll obey when it suits me. I'll obey, for example, when you know, I've got le- less pressures in my life and when the kids are a bit older and not so demanding and when work settles down a bit, that's, that's when I'll obey, that's when I'll obey. And we put a criteria before God that God looks at and goes, that's totally irrelevant. If I call you, I call you and you need to trust me. And thank you to Stephen for this morning for that beautiful illustration which plays so powerfully into this message this morning. But we sometimes give to God our conditional obedience. I, I've, I've shared the story of Kerry and, and, and my call into ministry in 1989. And I'll just give you the dot points without recapping the whole story. But we came to this place where we knew that we knew that we knew that God was calling us into full-time ministry. It was unmistakable. We knew it. And so we prepared for it. But instead of just trusting God at that point where he called us, we said, you know what we'll do? We'll sit down and we'll work really, really hard for the next six months. And then we'll be far better positioned financially to step out into full-time ministry. And then God had to pull the rug out from underneath us. And we realized, look, obedience is not conditional. Uh, you know, and sometimes we try to micromanage our obedience and we put all these conditions around our, our obedience. But Jesus calls to these disciples and they immediately left their nets behind. And here's a really interesting aside. As you read through the gospel accounts, after they left their nets, there's actually a number of times where you see the disciples in a boat with Jesus but there's no record ever if during those encounters where they're in a boat with Jesus that they went fishing. I find that really interesting. But here they are, and they're in this place where Jesus has gone. They're feeling a little bit lost. They're feeling incredibly discouraged. And Peter says, let's go back to fishing. And here is, I think, a great encouragement to those of us who sometimes feel like taking a step back. When we take a step away from God or when we step back from obedience to God, we always tend to step back to something that is familiar, to a safe place, even though that safe place 
might not be where God wants you to be. There's a long list of people in the Bible who were also ready to give up. Because they came to the point, as we often do, of feeling, I just don't have what it takes. What God is asking me to do seems absolutely impossible. And I'm not talking about obscure people. I'm talking about the fathers of our faith, people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Gideon and David and Elijah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Jonah. You read the stories of these guys and, and, and at some point in their story, there is self-doubt that almost, almost uh, causes them to miss out on the call of God upon their life. And they all came to this crossroads that says, I, I, I recognize I cannot do this. But then God always jumps in and says, I'm not asking you to do this. I'm asking you to trust me to accomplish this through you. Can I hear an amen this morning? And often we have a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness because we are painfully aware of our own inadequacies. And so then we have no choice other than to turn away from that, that faith adventure of following God and turning back to something which is lesser. And yet there's some mysterious comfort about it because it's familiar to us. And I'd suggest that for these disciples, going out in the boat... Going back to fishing is actually a perfect reflection of that. Because in the previous weeks, there had <laughs> there'd not been too much to encourage these guys. And so they were incredibly discouraged. So they go back to what they know. They go back to an, a, a, an area that they're a little bit confident about because uh, they have experience, they have expertise as fishermen. But then when they go back to fishing... Uh, I can only imagine that uh, first night out in the boat going back to fishing, they're increasing frustration when they catch absolutely nothing. So how did that work out for you, going back to what you were familiar with? But then morning came, verse 4, early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. Isn't it interesting the number of times you see when people encounter the resurrected Christ that they didn't actually recognize who it was. There's a couple of schools of thought, and I tend more to the second one. The first school of thought is it obviously infers that there's something about the physical appearance of Jesus that was different. Okay, well, that's cool. I get that theory. But I, I think there's a, a second point that is incredibly powerful, and that's this. They didn't recognize it was Jesus because they weren't expecting Jesus. They didn't recognize it was Jesus because they weren't expecting to see a resurrection of Jesus. Because to those who were closest to Jesus, as far as they knew, he was dead and buried. The last thing they were expecting is to see Jesus alive again. Now here in Galilee, these men are discouraged, they're disappointed, they're downhearted, they're a little lost because Jesus was no longer with them. Jesus was no longer a part of their reality and they were not expecting to see them, to, to see him. And let me say this, if Jesus is not a part of your reality, you won't, you won't expect to see him move. 
And I want to encourage you just to press into God, to recognize that God is a supernatural God, that God wants to intervene in your life, that God wants to evidence himself in your life. Because the same miraculous power of God that we see John records through his gospel is the same God. It is the same risen Christ who is here in this room this morning and he is not confined to the natural. He is a supernatural God. And yet we've got to expect that. We've got to expect to see him. When we come here, what's our expectation? That we'll sing some nice songs, be inspired by a good message, have a cup of tea, say good day to friends, and leave here without ever realizing that God is present, that God is here, and that God wants to move in and through our lives miraculously and supernaturally. And so what happens is that even though we, we, we can... Uh, be comfortable in coming to church, the supernatural activity of God doesn't really play out in our lives. And we read about it, we hear about it, and we hear about it in the life of others. And in fact, when we hear about it in the life of others, we get a little bit skeptical because their experience seems to be different to my experience. And in my experience, you know, God's a little bit distant and I don't expect that from him. And so when I see it in somebody else's life where they say God has moved, God has spoken to me, God has revealed stuff, God has shown me, there's a bit of skepticism because that's not our reality. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, do you expect God to be involved in your life? Do you expect God to be involved? Are you listening to God? Are you pressing into God? Are you saying, God, here I am, speak. God, would you direct my path today? God, would you reveal to me more of who you are and more of who I am supposed to be in you? But it's interesting, the disciples didn't recognize Jesus because they weren't expecting to see him. So how did Jesus then reveal himself to them? It's really interesting because he actually did it by asking a group of experienced fishermen uh, who haven't caught anything all night the one question they didn't want to hear and that's, hey guys, haven't you any fish? Uh, I mean, what's with that? But this is the way he revealed himself to the disciples. Friends, haven't you any fish? That's got to be an embarrassing question that stings a bit when they've been out fishing all night. So why did he ask that question? I think he asked it because he wanted to expose their failure. And when I say that, understand what I mean by that. When Jesus exposes our failure, he doesn't do it so that he can rub our, our noses into our own mess. He doesn't do it because he wants to shame us and humiliate us. It is always revealing our weakness so that he can replace our weakness with his strength. But until we confess that we are weak and in need of a saviour, God can't do a thing. And so our confession is so important for us to realize the fullness of what God wants to do in and through us by his Holy Spirit. Can I hear an amen? But until we confess that, until we confess there's a need, we're not making way for God to move. So he asks an obvious question that is embarrassing. Haven't you any fish? No, they answered. 
So when the disciples confessed the truth, no, we haven't caught a thing all night, Jesus didn't taunt them. He didn't poke fun at them because Jesus never humiliates us. Instead, he said in verse 6, hey guys, throw your net in the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. And suddenly there's the miracle. Jesus exposes their weakness. It caused the disciples to self-examine and confess their weakness. And in confessing their weakness, it gave Jesus access. And there was a huge catch of fish. Verse 7, because as soon as that happened, their eyes are open. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped, around his outer gar- he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed him in the boat, telling the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. So now Peter's so excited. This is Jesus. So excited, he just jumps into the water. And it's interesting, the others, obviously, 100 yards out, come in rowing behind him. Verse 9, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Here is Jesus cooking some fish, the very thing that they'd been unable to catch. And he says, hey, guys, come and have some breakfast. Verse 11, Simon Peter climbed aboard, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And there's a really strange statement. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him who he was or who are you because they knew it was the Lord. Isn't that a strange statement? None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. If I had said to you this morning, I, I saw Andrew Blake in the foyer, but I didn't have to ask if it was Andrew Blake because I knew it was Andrew Blake. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Friends, I think this goes to a point that at the heart, at the core, the essence of the Christian faith is not knowing about Jesus. It's actually a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's the main difference between Christianity and religion. Religion is being committed to a set of principles and to uh, a disciplined lifestyle that conforms us to those principles, whereas Truly living as a Christian is about a living, dynamic relationship with Jesus and intimacy. It leads to intimacy with our wonderful Heavenly Father, a living God. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Why does it say that? Well, it's interesting, and I think here's a couple of clues. In John chapter 14, in the upper room, uh, Jesus is there the night that he was betrayed, having a meal with his closest disciples. And uh, he says this in John 14 and 9, speaking to Philip. Uh, Philip, who had been with him for three years. Have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet you do not know me? Isn't that interesting? Philip, you've been hanging around with me. I've been hanging around with you. Do you not know me? The Apostle Paul later writes in Philippians 3 and 10, I want to know Christ. 
That's interesting coming from the guy who wrote you know, more than a third of the New Testament. He's saying, I want to know Christ. And you might say, well, Paul, mate, if you don't know him, there's not a hope that I know him. What are you talking about? But he goes on to say, this is my ambition. I, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That resurrection power. And then Peter, who is at the, uh, the, the central character in this story today, he later writes in 2 Peter 1 and 3, His, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. So he's saying, his confession is, man, we have everything that we need in God. We have everything that we need in Christ for life and for godliness. Where do you find that? He tells us in our knowledge of him. And friends, the more you press into God, the more that you get to know him, the more you will realize the incredible resources that you have in him the more that you will realize the supernatural power of God at work in you, in your circumstances, through your circumstances. And sadly, there are many, many, many people, even in the church today, who live in a state of spiritual poverty because they simply don't know Jesus well enough. They don't know Jesus well enough. They haven't ever discovered the full richness of, of what we have in Jesus that plays out on a day-to-day basis in our life. And it's not that we walk around seeing signs and wonders and miracles each and every day, but we walk around with a sense that says, I belong to God. I'm secure in God. God, I trust you. You will guide my steps as I trust in you and lean not on my own understanding that you have a pathway for me, that you have my best interests at heart, that God, you have called me for a purpose and to walk with that sense of supernatural calling that is supernaturally enabled. Can I hear an amen this morning? And so many people know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. So friends, what is the sign that this miracle is pointing to today? What's the lesson? Well, there's a bunch of them. But the story continues in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter... Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. So you can imagine the scene. They've just finished their breakfast. Peter gets, uh, Jesus gets Peter's attention and says, mate, uh, let's go for a walk. And at that point, Peter's probably thinking, oh man, I'm in for it now, given his recent history of failure. And so we have this picture where Jesus is addressing Peter alone. Verse 20 tells us John was following along somewhere behind. And he says in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? 
he's not talking about the other disciples. He's not talking about, oh, do you love me more than the other guys? You know, uh, Jesus doesn't play the jealousy game. Do you love me more than these? He's actually talking about his boat, his nets, all of those things that he's drifted back to for security. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your boat, more than your fishing career? Do you love me more than your, this thing that you have expertise in, this thing that gives you that sense of security? Do you love me more than the thing that I actually called you from just a few years ago? Do you love me more than these? What a great question. And friends, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus because in my Bible, it has a heading that says, Jesus reinstates Peter. I love that. Here is Jesus alone with the disciple that denied he even knew him. The disciple who gave up and went back fishing. And here's the wonderful thing. After breakfast, Jesus says, Pete, let's go for a walk. And here they are alone. Peter probably trembling in his boots. I'm going to cop an earful. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him didn't even mention his failure. Jesus didn't ask him for a confession of his failure. He asked him for a confession of his love. Peter, do you love me? And Peter's answer is really important. There's two things I want us to quickly see here. First of all, Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he doesn't add more than these. Jesus, do you love me more than these? Oh, you know I love you. Do you love me more than these? I think it's possible that Peter in his answer is saying this, Lord, you know I love you, but I don't know if I can say that I love you more than these, more than everything else. I, I know I should be able to, I'd like to, but I'm not sure that I can. Yes, Lord, I love you. But he doesn't say I love you more than these. Friends, can I encourage you? Sometimes we've got to get brutally honest with ourselves and with God because He knows our heart anyway. And sometimes you've got to say, Lord, I love you, but you know what? There's a lot of other stuff that I love as well. And that's the honest place that I'm at right now. Do you know honesty goes so far with God? Do I put God first? I would like to. Do I? I'm not sure. Peter, do you love me more than these? Jesus, you know I love you, uh, but I'm not sure. Now, now, does Jesus smack him over the back of the head and say, mate, come on, get with the program? And what you got to know is one of the wonderful things about Jesus is that He always, always, always meets us where we are at, but we've got to be honest about where we are at. Can I hear an amen? Because the second thing here, which uh, we miss because the English language is nowhere near as beautiful or poetic or as descriptive as the Greek. And there are two words actually used here that both translate to love in English. The first word is the word uh, agape, which is the highest form of love. It's, it's the purest form of God's love towards us. And then there's the word philio, which is 
kind of a brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's where they get their name from. And it's, it, it's more of a brotherly mateship kind of, you know, blokey affection. And Jesus said, do you love me more than these? He's using the word agape. Do you love me more than these? And Peter responds, Lord, you know I love you. And he uses the lesser form of love, a brotherly love. He uses the word phileo. This is really interesting. Because Peter responds in essence saying, God, man, I love you, Jesus. You're my friend and I love you, but I just can't use the word that you use because I'm aware of how I've let you down. I'm aware of my failure. Now, does Jesus at that point say, okay, Pete, I get it. Thank you for being honest. Let's just put everything on the back burner then until we can get on the same page. And we'll meet up again in a few months and uh, we'll just see if your heart has changed. Now, Jesus doesn't say that to Peter. Peter says, feed my lambs. Pete, I, I get it. I appreciate your honesty. I know your heart. I know that you can't say you love me more than these. I know that you can't even use the same word when I express love towards you. You can't even use the same word back to me. But Peter, I got a job for you to do. And I'm going to commission you right now, Jesus reinstating Peter, feed my lambs. And friends, I've got to tell you, I love the fact that Jesus uses flawed, ordinary, everyday, failing people. And I think the criteria or the condition there is as long as we are being honest with ourselves and honest with God, as long as we're not pretending things to be that simply are not, as long as they're not just simply saying the right things because it's the right thing to say, but just being in that place of total honesty before God. Really interesting in Matthew 28 where Jesus commissions the disciples. And I love this. And he says in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They worshipped him and some doubted. At that point, did Jesus say, Well, all the guys that doubted, put your hands up and just go off to the side for a second. I'll get back to you guys later. And the ones who didn't doubt, I'm commissioning you to go into all the world and make disciples of all men and all nations. No, He didn't. He included the doubters saying, that's okay, it's okay to doubt, but you need to learn to trust me and my call upon your life is no different just because you doubt. Because my call is my call and I have called you, I have commissioned you and you've got to look at, his, look at who it is that's doing the commissioning. And it is a God who is greater than your doubts, greater than your unbelief, a God who is greater than your insecurities, a God who is greater than uh, that sense of I've got nothing of value or worth to give to God. God says, no, you are worthy because I am calling you and I need to, you to look to me and, and exercise faith 
beyond your limitations and realize that I'm a supernatural God and I'm calling you to impact a generation and to make a difference in your life. Jesus sent doubting people to go and build the church. How cool is that? And when Jesus first called Peter, He said, I will make you fishers of men. And now He's saying, now feed my sheep. Now it's interesting because the analogy has changed. But in essence, what He is saying is, what you have caught, now I'm asking you to feed. And this is the discipleship process. You need to feed what you have caught. And friends, what I want to tell you as we close is that as we grow in our intimacy with Jesus, as we get to know Him more, He extends that same commission to us. That same commission to us. And He's saying, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Can I encourage you? One of the greatest things that will aid your spiritual growth is not sitting here every Sunday morning listening to everything that's going on and going, that was really good. The thing that will so spur on your spiritual growth is just getting out there and having a go for Jesus. Just saying, God, I'm scared as all get up, but I trust you. You're calling me and I'm just going to step out of the boat. There's not the perfect day. There's not the perfect conditions. There's not the perfect criteria. And I'll certainly never be perfect. But hey, God, I trust you. Your calling is on my life. I'm not here by accident. I'm here by divine purpose. And God, I want to see that purpose fulfilled in and through my life. It's important that we gather together as God's people like this, but that's not the reason we gather together. The reason we gather together is to spur each other on to that which God has called us to. To make disciples, to catch fish, and to feed the sheep. And friends, what we learn in here is only going to be helpful if it translates into action out there. If Jesus was to ask us the same question this morning, haven't you any fish? I wonder what our honest response would be to that. Have we been fishing for men? Would we be honest to say, you know what, Jesus, I haven't caught a thing. To which Jesus would reply, and there's the lesson today. Well, it's now time to start doing it my way. And I want to encourage you to begin praying with that expectation that as we submit every area of our lives to Jesus, as we come just as we are in purity of heart and honest confession before Him, that He will take that material and use it to do something significant in your life. 